This is One Universe at a Time. I'm Brian Coberline. If you've ever been around a baby, you know how fun it is to hide an object and bring it back out. The baby believes the object is gone, and in fact forgets it even existed. Fortunately, we all grow out of this and develop something called object permanence. Today we're going to talk about this with Dr. Grant Guthiel, Associate Professor of Psychology at Nazareth College in Rochester, New York. I have seen videos online, mm-hmm. and I know that they're psychological studies. They must have been screen capped or something, but they're posted under "Children are stupid." Yeah, and I they hate do those. these they do these videos, and they show that little kids just don't think the way I do. And one of them is uh, what we call object permanence—the idea that when it disappears, they think it doesn't exist. Right. Um, is that, I mean, how does that work in the sense of, you think that would be pretty innate that things exist? Well, there is a fair amount of evidence that to some degree babies do think differently than we do, but the extent to which infants and young children are more like us or less like us is one of the fundamental issues in developmental science. So just to get a if you'll excuse the phrase, a better definition of object permanence out there. Okay. Um, It is the belief or lack of belief that an object continues to exist when it is out of your immediate sensory field. So if you can't feel it, hear it, touch it, taste it, etc., it evaporates. Okay. And more than that, if you really want to push the more extreme versions of this limitation, not only does it cease to exist, you forget it ever did. I'm assuming this is in children that aren't old enough to talk? Depending upon how you want to define real object permanence, it's in babies before eight months or it's in babies before 24 months, but it's certainly even in the most extreme or conservative versions of babies do not have object permanence, right. it shows up at 18 to 24 months. So how do you, how do you tell that then? I mean, how, how do you know what's working in a baby's head when they don't talk? I love infant research and thought for a while that I might do it. And, you know, then you go into an infant lab and you realize, <laughs> oh, these people are insane. Your, actu- your subjects are, you know, three-month-old infants who basically are loaves of bread that poo and scream a lot. Right. So to be a good infancy researcher is to have both an incredibly creative notion of what good experimental design is and to also be incredibly patient and kind to your participants and yeah. it, it's mammothly difficult to so do. So there's well. a lot of noise in these experiments not oh, just literally but in but terms yeah, of the data and, there's a lot and of noise. The way that it's done most often is what are broadly referred to as habituation and recovery studies Okay. and what these rely on, the fundamental experimental measurable behavioral result is babies look longer at stuff that surprises them, that interests them that they don't understand. Right, the in, odd, na- odd thing is what we stare at. Yeah and okay. just as a piece of that how different are babies from me, that's exactly how we do it. Right. I mean, we do, what? What is it? I mean, we have exactly kind of that dog tilting our head to the side thing. Of, Something odd appears in our field of view and we stare at it. Yeah, exactly. We and, rubberneck. Yeah, and okay. exactly. And the babies do the same thing. So you take advantage of that behavioral measure. And what you do is construct very elaborate and very specifically controlled experiments in which you show them different stuff Mm -hmm. and you see what they look longer at. And the experimental data are in condition A, they looked longer, they looked for this amount of time. Condition B, they looked for this amount of time. Is there a significant difference between those two conditions or not? Right. If they look longer at something, the implication is that 
they understand or at least understand enough that they're trying to figure out what's going on. So the thing that they look longer at is something usually called of an impossible event or a magical event. Right. Something unexpected, and they tend to look at it longer. Yeah. So you cover two things, and it moved to a different place without actually Moving. seeing it move. Yeah. And how did they respond to that? Right. And okay. the way the object permanent stuff goes is you show them a situation where something violates basic physics. Okay. It reappears and disappears. You do a magic trick, basically. Yeah, you do a magic trick. And are they surprised by that magic trick or not? If okay. they are surprised by the magic trick, the inference is they are surprised because they have object permanence and they're looking at it the same way an adult would and saying, wait a minute, that can't happen. How did that happen? I don't understand that. So they stare at it longer. Well, that's if they, interesting. If they don't have object permanence, it's like, okay, fine, whatever. Oh, look, okay, butterflies. So <laughs> I mean, they don't have the conceptual problem, so they don't stare longer. Right. So, so when you reach a certain level, magic tricks become interesting. Yes, if you have unexpected. the conceptual ability to understand that, wow, so a Buick can't float 18 feet in the air on fire and then disappear. That's <laughs> not the way the world works. And it's like misdirection, too. It's yes. the same thing, that we expect something to happen in a certain way, exactly. and a magician would take advantage of that. Exactly. Okay. That's really the data, more or less. You develop any number of tweaks on this procedure refine it and refine it and refine it to the point that you show them a set of events and the only interesting thing that differs between condition one and condition two is a test of the conceptual problem that you're interested in. Is the object still there when you can't see it? If you believe that, you must respond in this way. If you don't believe that, you must respond in this other way. Right. That's, That's the data. That's how they do it. Okay. And just to say what a problem is with a lot of these studies, a lot of people, a lot of psychologists say you're still trying to crawl inside a three-month-old's head right. and figure out what's going on, and that's really difficult, and these are broad and difficult inferences to make. And the infants, the, the infant cognition guys say, yeah, you're right. That's why we've done 18 million variations on this, and right. we have controlled for every conceivable thing you can come up with. Right. It becomes at that point in the the, the responsibility of the skeptic to say, Okay, I don't believe that a four-month-old has object permanence. Okay, fine. Explain the result. Right. And they can't. And it, my understanding would be then that it's, it's not that psychologists are saying the baby's thinking, oh, there's a thing, there's a thing. Oh, it went away. It disappeared. It doesn't come to mind anymore. Exactly. Just, and the, they don't think of it still being there because they're not holding it and as an idea. That, where that gets into the memory aspect of this as well. You can't have mental representation, you can't have object permanence if you cannot form memories. Right. And there's an old school thing um, going back like 50, 75 years that babies don't have memories. Babies can't form memories. Right. Okay, that's goofy. It's related to something called infantile amnesia, where none of us remember much of what happened in the first couple of years of our lives. Right. Most people's solid, verifiable memories stop at about age two. If you have a small child, and you ask them about things, they remember it. And then as they get older, they forget it. Yeah, they don't. So they've, you know, if they're four, they might remember something at two. Yes. But then when they're eight, they don't exactly. remember that event at two anymore. And that's been taken as evidence that babies don't form memories. Babies don't form memories. Therefore, right. babies don't have object permanence or mental representation. And that's goofy because they do form memories. There is a great deal of very good research showing, in some cases, that babies can form memories very limited memories, but can form memories in the womb in the last couple of months of pregnancy. So the idea that they don't have memories is goofy. So right. they do. Well, so wasn't there a language study that, like, if they hear certain tones, yeah, they're familiar it, there's with that? Yeah, there's a lot of different ones. The most famous one's called the Cat in the Hat study. 
I okay. mean, developmental psychologists have all these kind of goofy oh, names. Goofy which, names yeah, for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we do too. We call things quarks and stuff. Yeah, so, so it, it kind of works the same way, I guess. But <laughs> you have a pregnant woman sit in a chair and read The Cat in the Hat right. for twice a day. Just read right. the whole book, put the book on her belly, and just read. And read the book. And the kid can hear. The day the kid's born, you do various conditions, but essentially, does the kid recognize the story? Right. And so you have the mom read Cat in the Hat versus a different book, probably a different right. Dr. Seuss book. Right. Or you have a different woman read the, the Cat in the Hat and the mom reads something else. You see differentially how the kids react. And it's pretty clear that the kids remember mom's voice reading that book. Right. Now, I want to be clear about this because I get students who say, wait a minute, that means they understand the cat in the hat? No. No, no they don't understand the no, cat in the hat. at all. What they, they hear recognize, is... Wah, 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 yeah, they wah, hear wah, the wah, wah, sounds. Wah. They recognize okay. the sounds. That's the memory. Yeah. So they have memories very early on. There's other research showing that you can get really solid memories with babies with training and reinforcement really early on as well. Right. So Train memory. them like cats. And they, <laughs> <laughs> and they remember And things. they remember <laughs> <laughs> There's still more to mental representation than that. There's a conceptual understanding of how does my world work? How right. does the universe work? And this is part of a much bigger and messier controversy in the field, which gets back to your original question. How alike am I to a four-month-old versus right. how different am I from a four-month-old? Well, I would say probably it's that, you know, we're not even that much alike to what we think we actually are. That's you know, we, certainly one way of we, looking we at it. We certainly, we model our world in terms of words and that mm. we're logical and mm -hmm. rational. Yeah, we're, I not. Know. we're not. We've done things like blindness studies where yeah. you can switch someone out completely. Mm -hmm. and, and we think they're the same person because they should be the same person. person. And we just don't think that, about that. Um, and that's actually cognitively really useful because that only happens if you're dealing with an individual that the only thing you care about is their overall behavior. Right. You don't need to recognize an individual, so you don't. We're mentally lazy. Yeah, and, and so the thing is, mentally lazy works. It right. does, because why clutter your brain and your thought process up with a whole bunch of crappy detail that is irrelevant? Right. You don't need to remember what the cashier at Wegmans looks like. But we think we do. Yeah, we, well, we're wrong. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, people get really bent out of shape about that in that, you know, well, you treat me like an object or, you you know, my customers oh, don't pay me attention. Oh, right. Yeah, and, and, and they're right. We do. That's how we're wired. Get over it. I know it makes you sad. I don't care. <laughs> it, it's just what is. This is why you're evil. You, <laughs> yeah. This you treat us like machines, and we don't like that. I am not a number. I am a human being. <laughs> yeah, we're all special snowflakes, except we're not in right. the vast majority of cases. But there's this broad theoretical split in the field. On one side is a whole bunch of people who are more likely to believe that babies are more different from older kids and adults. Okay, there's some dramatic shift. Yeah, several dramatic shifts. Okay, several um, dramatic shifts. And there's another group that says, no, the real story, the fundamental story, is that we are fundamentally and qualitatively the same. Right. And what development consists of is not radical, conceptual, or other kinds of shifts. You just get bigger, better, stronger, and faster at doing the same stuff. Okay. So what differentiates a six-month-old from a, from a six-year-old is just that the six-year-old has more experience, has a more fully developed brain, and okay. is able to do exactly the same things, just a hell of a lot better. Are we then fundamentally different from 
say other primates for example oh, that's i mean a, that's a fun it, question because it, it seems like an easy model to do would be that you know they start off as puddle mm-hmm. and then they may have like dog-like intelligence mm-hmm. and then chimpanzee-like intelligence and eventually they're as smart as humans there's we think of this as, as intelligence as kind of following a scale and i know there were some studies with i think it may have been bonobos mm-hmm. where they teach them some basic math and they can do it as long as there isn't the little raisins there that they immediately grab towards, which little kids do. Little exactly. kids will, will grab towards something, even when they know they can't, they're not supposed Posted. to. They'll grab it and go, I'm sorry. I can't help it. Because they can't help it. Yeah, and yet, yeah. as they get older, they lose that. Right. The way our brains are wired, are we cognitively different? That is the core question. It's uh, a nativist viewpoint on one side, which says we're a lot more alike to our primate cousins, and there's much more of an associationist viewpoint that says, no, we're actually very different. Mm-hmm. And there's evidence on both sides. I mean, okay. if you look at the ape language stuff, bonobos are scary. Right. Okay? In it, many ways, very similar yeah, to us. And I want and I want to preface this just by saying, I understand for anybody who knows the ape language research that it is controversial, that there's a lot of stuff out there about the primates being treated badly, and there's right. all kinds of controversy. But aside right. of that, if you look in a bonobo's eyes, there's somebody home at a fundamental, just human level I look at my cat and I see a four-footed furry thing that purrs. You look in a bonobo's eyes, you see a person. Right. It's either fascinating and wonderful or it's a kill it with fire moment, depending right. upon the individual who's looking. But there's somebody home in there. Right. That argues that they're much more like us than they are different. Right. So we now, see that in babies, even yeah, without obvious exactly. permanence. There's something There's somebody there. home. Somebody's man. home. Somebody's yeah. home. But there's been a whole lot of work on teaching bonobos language. Right. And there's yeah, I'm not gonna go through all the crap on sign language. It doesn't work seriously. Have you seen an orangutan's fingers? Yeah. They can't do sign language. Um teaching them to speak. They don't have the voice box. That's right. crazy. Right. But you can teach language, syntactically structured communication to right. a bonobo, they will learn it. But the thing is, and here's where it's a problem, they can learn it, which means they're much more like us than different. Right. Yeah, they can learn it, but even the most famous case, which is a bonobo, bonobo named Kanzi, um, mm-hmm. who did some dramatically cool stuff, it, especially with receptive language, not right. production, but the ability to understand spoken English language. Right. Really phenomenal stuff. The difference between even Kanzi and a human infant and toddler is Kanzi has to get up every day or had to get up every day and go to language school. Right. There's not a two-year-old on the planet ever went to language school right. to learn their native right. language. It doesn't happen. They can't help it. It's how we're wired. Right. So there are fundamental things that are that are native to us, and yet there are still lots of similarities. And where that comes out is, is hard to distinguish. And that's why the theoretical fight exists. And the object permanent stuff is another example of that. Right. You're listening to One Universe at a Time. I'm your host, Brian Corperline. We've been talking with Dr. Grant Guthiel, Associate Professor of Psychology at Nazareth College, about object permanence. In the second half of our show, he'll ask the questions and I'll answer. Today, Dr. Guthiel is curious about why Pluto is no longer considered a planet. What happened to Pluto? I mean... Nothing happened to Pluto. It's still there. It's still there, but why isn't Pluto a planet? I mean, when I went to school... You'd make the little styrofoam models of the solar right, system, right. and there are nine planets. Please tell right. me there are nine, and I remember that correctly. There were nine there planets. There were nine, right? Yes. Pluto's one of the nine. Yes. Who wakes up one morning and decides, you know what? You're not a planet. 
I'll answer your question with another question. Why is Ceres not a planet? I have no idea. You have no idea. You, you, okay, you okay. want to know why I know Pluto's a planet? Because I made a little model out of styrofoam right. when I was you in were, school. You were told that it was a planet. And Ceres is uh, the largest asteroid in the asteroid belt. Okay. It's smaller than our moon. How big is Pluto? I have no idea. It's not large. About the size of our moon. The, the idea is if the asteroid is an asteroid and not a planet, then Pluto is maybe not an asteroid, but certainly not a it's, planet. It's an interesting thing because when, when Ceres was discovered, it was called a planet. And it very clearly orbited the sun. It very clearly had size and dimension. You know, we could see basically what it was. And we called it a planet. I guess the thing that bothers me about this is there are fundamental things that astrophysicists should know. What a planet is. And what it's not. This shouldn't seem to be something you make a mistake but about. That's somewhat an arbitrary definition. Okay. Like, what do we mean by a planet? All right. And this is, I mean, Ceres is a good example because when it was first discovered, we called it a planet. It orbits the sun. Planets orbit the sun. Got it. And then we would find other ones. We found Vesta and Pallas okay. and all of these other ones. They're smaller, but they're still orbiting the sun. Do we call them all planets? And what right. happened is in the early 1800s, after we discovered series, we discovered other ones okay. that were all kind of in the same range. They were all in the same distance between Mars and Jupiter. Okay. They were all small. Okay, so that's where these asteroids hang out between Mars and Jupiter. Right, between mostly. Mars and Jupiter okay. is what we call the asteroid belt. Got it. And so you find multiple planets, quote okay. unquote, between Mars and Jupiter that were small. Okay. They're all very similar. And as you find more and more of them, you find out, actually, there's nothing unique about Ceres compared to other bodies that are in that region. Okay. There's lots of them in the same region. They're all in a general same type of size. So that's what we changed Ceres from a planet to an asteroid. And, and you're so, saying that Pluto is basically a planet by historical accident. Right. When we okay. found Pluto, we found Pluto is the only object there. Well, now we know there are lots more. Okay. And they are in the same general range. They're small like Pluto. And they're very different from the planets that we see normally. And so as we found more and more of these objects, these Pluto-like planets, if you want to call them that, it was decided that actually classifying Pluto not as a planet makes more sense. Is the word planetoid... Is, is that something I guess pulled out of sci-fi literature? No, planet, or is planetoid is anything that would orbit the sun, whether it's an asteroid or except for a planet, perhaps. But a planetoid would be technically any body that orbits the sun, regardless of its size. You know, the asteroid belt, we now have you know, thousands and thousands of bodies, most of which are very small. But some of them, like Ceres, are moon-sized. And so that's why we sent a probe to Ceres and Vesta. You know, okay. they're roughly moon size. They're fairly circular, you know, spherical right. in shape. You look at Pluto. Pluto is similar. It has its own little moon. Right. And it's, so there's a moon it, around Pluto? There are more than one moon. There's one big moon. Is it bigger than Pluto? No. Okay. No. It's actually big enough, though, that the center of mass mm -hmm. uh, is outside of the surface of Pluto. So sometimes they would call Pluto a double planet. Okay, my brain hurts. Uh, <laughs> okay, so what makes it a double planet is it's difficult to distinguish between the planet and the planet's satellite? No, it makes it a double planet in that if you look at the Earth and the Moon, okay. we have a really large moon. Yeah. But if you put the Earth and the Moon kind of balancing on a seesaw, okay. what would we call its barycenter, its okay. balance point, if they were just sitting there. Okay. The barycenter of the Earth-Moon system is inside the Earth. Okay. So it's it's not outside the Earth. When you do Pluto in its largest moon, it is 
outside. That theoretical balance point is somewhere between the two objects. Right. And so some people would argue that, in fact, if the barycenter is outside of the planet, then it's a double planet, not a planet and moon. Okay. And Pluto is the one example of that. Okay. Uh, But there are also multiple smaller moons that we know, and we'll probably find more when we do the flyby mission. Flyby mission. Well, we're sending, there's a New Horizons probe that's heading towards Pluto. It'll be there. We're actually soon. still sending things out. I thought NASA basically had well, been we becoming, sent, they we had a garage sale and yeah, you know, well, no, pretty we much sent nobody it works out there anymore. And, and so it's getting there. Okay. So this past week, we've actually just reached Ceres. So now we're going up towards Pluto with a different mission. Ah, okay. So that's we're starting cool. to, yeah, we're starting to see these, these bodies. But as we found more of them, we're seeing that they tend to group into families. They, they're not individual. I mean, the, the planets by themselves, Okay. you know, Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune are these large objects. They dominate their orbit. And there isn't a lot that crosses its path that's, that's of comparable size. Right. Whereas things like Ceres in the asteroid belt or Pluto don't. There are other bodies out there that are of similar sizes, of similar orbits, in a range. And so you look at Pluto, you see similar bodies with it. The Plutoids. Oh, yeah. man, that's, that's but, beautiful. But there's Plutoids. nothing special that says this is a planet. Whereas if you look at where Neptune is, mm-hmm. there isn't anything near Neptune okay. of Neptune's size. So this is more clearly more of a psychological than an astrophysical question. But yeah, emotionally. why do you think this has pissed people off so much? Because I mean, people grew up got mad. This. Oh, people are still mad. Yeah. Neil Tyson still gets angry letters from six-year-olds, you know? <laughs> This is this is something that that people are emotionally connected to. When you name something, you, you no, kind of okay. you possess it, you own it. You mm-hmm. know, it's you know the dog that that you name that lives with you is your is, dog. Is your dog. Right. The other dog you might care for it in an abstract sense, but, but yeah, whatever. In the general sense of well, that might be someone else's dog, but this is our Pluto. Let someone else <laughs> this worry is about our Pluto. Yeah, I mean, people are connected to it that way. Wow, and, that's bizarre. In some sense, you know, it's. It's not that we didn't know how to classify it, but as we learned more, we got better classifying at it. Okay, you see, that's a problem in a different way, I think, that when I woke up one morning and found out that, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson rolled out of bed and decided, you know, by fiat, <laughs> Pluto is no longer a planet, um, that didn't really bother me. But the right. thing that I thought, when that event happened was more that, oh man, he's going to get hate mail because that makes science, that makes astrophysics look completely arbitrary. Yeah, You can't be wrong about that basic stuff. Right. It's either a planet or it's not. We should have figured that one out a while ago and that should right. be stable. Right. What we know about Pluto hasn't changed, but what we categorize it right. has changed. I that's mean, a, that's a subtle distinction for people. Man. Well, But it's no different than saying, okay, if we said you're an adult at 18. Versus 21. Right. We could say, it's 21. So 21, now you're an adult, period. It hasn't changed what an 18-year-old is. It doesn't change. Can we make adulthood start at 40? (laughs) (laughs) Speaking as a developmentalist, I'm, I'm, yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't know. Maybe we never have adults, period. (laughs) Exactly. But it's just an arbitrary designation. We have to draw a line somewhere. But we can get away. When I say we, I mean psychologists and, you know, social scientists. People give us more space than they do you guys, and the reason they do is terrible. It's because they don't trust what we say anyway. Right. They expect you guys to, in capital gold-plated letters, to be right because you do science. Right. And this sort of event, I am sure, gives some 
credence to people's, you know, well, it's all just a theory. They don't right. even know what Pluto right. is. They can't well, even tell if Pluto's a planet. I mean, good God, these right. people are and stupid. That's, you know, the thing about science is that it is subject to new information, and we adapt our models based upon that new information. And this is a classic example of that. When, when we first discovered Pluto, it was the only thing out there. It's the only thing we could see. The only thing we could see. Right. And it was very clearly not asteroid-sized. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we first discovered it, we actually didn't know how big it was, because all we could say is how bright it was. And okay. its size, you could have something that's large and dim that would give off, reflect as much light as something so that's small, small and bright. And bright. And so you just have to make some estimation in terms of how, how big it is. That's probably a really different question, but I'm fascinated by the notion of, I can get the idea of a bright or dim star, right. but planets don't produce their own light, so it has to be reflected light. Yes. So bright and dim. I don't know if you want to go there, okay, but well, that's here, a very interesting... Okay, here's, here's a good example. If you look at pool balls, okay. so, so you're playing pool... If you looked at the eight ball, mm-hmm. and you kind of imagine the eight ball, most of it's dark. Right. But at some point, you'll see this bright, glossy reflection. Right. So if you took a picture of that in dim light, what you would see is a small, bright point, even though the whole thing is And the larger, small, bright point is clearly the white circle with the eight right in it. Is that little yeah. reflection. Yeah. If you looked at uh, the cue ball, you'd see the whole thing is white. Because you would see it. It would look very large. So Pluto could either be literally a dark planet. Right. Just in terms of its of its substance. Right. It either is lighter or darker, and so it would reflect either more or less light. Right. And a okay. lot of it depends upon what it's made of, which we can't right. get from just looking at a photographic image in a simple level. I right. Mean, it, one of the problems we have is people think, like, the moon is actually very bright. It's actually not. The moon is the color of asphalt. Really? It's it's actually really dark. Wow. But but again See, that's just wrong. The moon the moon is the color more or less of burned charcoal ash. That gray Yeah, it's grayish more yeah. than, than dark gray. But yeah, yeah there's these it's not very bright for what we would think on the Earth as being very Man, bright. Man, I would think of it as very light gray. Well, but the thing is, as you know with perception, <laughs> if you're against a completely black background and, yeah, the, and the space... And you're not completely, completely black, dark, it looks It, it looks, looks bright. bright. Yeah. And so, you know, when we take an image of something, we brighten it up mm-hmm. so it looks like something that's actually really bright, and it's not. And the same is true with a lot of asteroids and... Dresses. And dresses. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. We'll I, go shouldn't have gone, I shouldn't have gone there, but I couldn't help it. But yeah, I mean, the, the, so the question, when you first see Pluto, is it more like the moon, at which point it's fairly dark mm-hmm. and it would be fairly large? Okay. Or is it something that is ice-covered? So uh, Europa, for example, mm-hmm. one of Jupiter's moons, is extremely bright. It's extremely reflective. Right. Um, if it was covered in ice, then it would be very bright because right. snow, for example, is very bright. Okay. And so if you're trying to figure out some mix of charcoal to snow, <laughs> okay, and you the don't charcoal know, to snow scale. <laughs> yeah, the charcoal to snow scale. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's it's actually of you can do a, a reflectivity. You can do how much what's called its albedo. Okay. Which is basically the charcoal to snow scale. Wow, there is, a, there is a charcoal to snow scale. Well, yeah, I mean, we call it albedo. Yeah. It's basically what fraction of light that hits its surface will be reflected back. Not for nothing, you do a lot better calling it the charcoal to snow scale. Somebody well, should do something about that. The charcoal to snow scale, yeah. yeah. So so we, we have that idea of brightness. As okay. we've gotten better images, we've now got a pretty good idea of what its size is. And and yeah, it's, it's moon-sized. It's wow. not planet-sized. And so, you know, you could say, yeah, but it has a moon. 
But so do asteroids. There are asteroids that have moons. So that doesn't make it a planet. All right. So I get the science. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got the data to back it up. But I think this still gets to that really fundamental problem that a lot of people have with science right that scientists love we love that stuff changes we love that we get it better we love that we learn more but most people are saying wait a minute if it changes all the time and if you guys can't be sure that a planet's planet how can we trust you to do anything i'm willing to make a bet okay after we do the flyby of pluto and after we do the flyby of Ceres, there's going to be this whole flurry of information right I'm willing to bet that Ceres and Pluto will be reclassified as planets because wow. of it. Because <laughs> people just want that they to be so... They want it that badly. And, you know, getting a new planet's kind of cool. Yeah, then now we, we, we had nine, now we have ten, so now we're cooler. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I could see that. The psychology yeah. there makes a whole lot of sense. Let me just see if it can go to 11. <laughs> go to 11, yeah. <laughs> We've been talking with Dr. Grant Guthiel, an associate professor of psychology at Nazareth College. Our program is produced at the Rochester Institute of Technology with support from the RIT College of Science. I'm your host, Brian Koberlein. Thanks for listening to One Universe at a Time. 